everyone, uh, my name is David Fidalgo and welcome to the episode 3 of Conversations in the Park, a podcast developed by Wine Mobility to chat about meaningful topics uh, in a relaxed environment. I always actually like to uh, remember from time to time when we actually come with a concept. Uh, it was because before the pandemic, we usually, uh, several experts, friends of Wine Mobility used to join in a, in a pub to having a pint and discussing some of the uh, hot topics uh, that we're seeing in the industry. Uh, when the pandemic hit, we will try to do the same thing in the park, and that's how basically conversations in the park born. So let's grab a drink and let's go. That's today we are discussing uh, an exciting topic about cybersecurity and functional safety in the new era of the automotive. A very interesting subject with the development of the autonomy and smart devices. Uh, today, uh, as you know, we actually have different co-hosted in the podcast. I've been joining with uh, our CTO and co-founder of One Mobility, Diet Lancaster. Hi, Diet. How are you doing? Hi, David. Yeah, it's great to be here and great to have another session. Um, I'm going, really looking excited to introduce our guests today. They're, they're all great friends of Y Mobility and uh, long-standing colleagues of, of ours. So uh, if we can just go around the table, the virtual table, I'm going to start with Edith and ask her to introduce herself. Hello, uh, I'm Edith Holland. I'm a Chief Functional Safety Engineer at Hariba Myra. And uh, prior to joining Hariba Myra, I worked um, in at Jaggi Land Rover. I've worked in functional safety for over 20 years now. Um, and I'm also one of the UK experts on the um, working group that's responsible for the functional safety standard ISO 262 and also the new SOTIS standard, uh, which is out in this format now, and that's ISO DIS 21448. And uh, they're going over to Roger Rivet next. Hi, um Roger Rivette, I worked in the automotive industry uh, for nearly 40 years. Been involved in functional safety since really about 1990, long term, in participant in the MISRA activities, and then was a founder member of the working group eight responsible for ISO 26262 and the new uh, SOTIS standard. Um, I retired a couple of years ago, but I've been quite active since then. I have a, an engagement at York uh, where I had um, just previously finished an engineering doctorate. Since retiring, I've been working um, more on um, maybe autonomy, which is quite a, a nice, interesting new challenge. And then finally, but not uh, not indifferently, um, Peter Davis. Hi, I'm Peter Davis from Talus, and uh, I've spent almost my entire working career in, in doing security. Um, so I guess I'm the security person on, on, the, on the team, as it were. But um, latterly, uh, and indeed through most of that period of time, I've been using security in environments where it's been to do with safety and particularly functional safety. Um, and for at least the last decade now, I've been spending time um, concentrating on the problems associated with um, how do you achieve safety in the face of cyber attacks? So how do you do cyber security and functional safety together? Um, and in that role, I also lead a lot of the work coming from ASIN uh, and the security work stream uh, for, for that organization. Fantastic. Well, thank you all for joining us today. So I'm, I'm going to open uh, the first round of questions and discussions uh, just to just to get a, a scene set, really, for, for the listeners to understand a basic definition of functional safety, a basic definition of cybersecurity, and then later we'll explore some of the, the overlaps and differences. 
So, uh, Roger, do you want to open for us? Okay, well, I talk about functional safety. I mean, you might have thought that was a straightforward question, but, you know, like most things, um, it's more complicated than it seems. I would say the traditional view, the, the view that's held by most people or advocated by most people, even if they don't agree with it, is that um, functional safety is worrying about um, the effects of random or systematic failures um, in a machine where those failures could lead to um, harm to people. And so essentially, you're trying to anticipate what harm could accrue to people, how bad that would be, and then from look for engineering solutions to mitigate the systematic and random failures. The reason that it's um, controversial is that one view, the dominant view, is that we assume that we've got a specification of what's required, and that's not in itself hazardous, and then we worry about implementing that specification. The new SOTIV standard um, worries about getting the specification right. Now, you could say, well, you know, it doesn't really matter whether you got the specification um, wrong or right, or whether you got the, um, the implementation wrong or right. Ultimately, everything needs to be right, and it's an artificial split. Um, but it's a split that we have to live with. So there are two worlds of the associative, are we defining a safe system? And then functional safety, ISO 26262, are we actually delivering a safe system? Okay, thank you, De uh, thank you, Roger, for that. So, Peter, can, can we have your version of cybersecurity then, please? So, so I guess I'll try and pick up on, on, on what Roger's speaking about there. Um, so, so clearly, at its most trivial, um, cyber security is breaking things, and or cyber cyber attacks are breaking things, and cyber security is looking to defend against those. But generally speaking, what we've evolved is a is a relatively short way of talking about that. Um, we talk about cyber resilience. We talk about a system that's resilient if and only if there's justifiable and enduring confidence that will function as expected when expected. Um, we then layer onto that that it's secure if it displays this property in the face of an adversary. And we layer onto the top of that, it's cyber secure if it displays this property in the face of an adversary that need not be co-located. And so it, really, these are just explosions of the, of the, of the, um, of the um, general system resilience um, uh, proposition that goes on that one. And my job is just to destroy what what, what Rogers put together. <laughs> Very social of you, yes. So so we'll, we'll, we'll blend this now into 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 the next element of of the discussion. And perhaps Edith, you can lead us then into a, a view of what what's common between the two and some of the differences that that uh, manifest themselves in in both the engineering and the public implications. As as Roger was saying, it's uh, mainly the different causes that distinguish between what we address in functional safety and uh, SOTIF. But um, overall, what we're still trying to, to achieve, this reduction in risk, um, is looking at harm that could potentially occur as a result of vehicle behavior, behavior that's um, well, that's unsafe. So that's either, uh, well, and that could either be caused as a, as a result of uh, malfunction or something that's not appropriate. And this is then where the consideration really shifts from the design and looking into the electronic system or the item, if we're using ISO 26262 to speak, to um, making sure that the, the environment is sufficiently considered when you're doing the design um, of these types of systems. And in that respect, I think it is closer, again, to cybersecurity, uh, where obviously the, the attack is coming from somewhere external 
But it's difficult, different, isn't it, Edith, in the way that probability applies in relation to these things? Because I think, I mean, it, it's true. In a sense, we do the same things. Um, however, I have, a, I have an infinite space, and it goes back to some of what Roger was saying. Yeah, I mean, I know we've discussed in the past, very often people have highly complex diagrams, but they all set out to describe a system that is closed. And fundamentally, this is not a closed system. And we then look on top of that and you say, you know, and as you say, you look at, we're looking at the failure modes and things against that. But as a cyber attacker, I pretty much have an infinite space that I can attack you in, in order to get these things. But I only have to find one outcome and you have to attend, you know, do the infinite space. So generally what we've done in looking at safety and, and not considering cyber security was to, was to look at, uh, was to look at, you know, we get this probability that this would occur over this period of time. Thank you. For, and you can do your statistics on that. But I skew the statistics essentially at the point I discover this, and I've often discovered it before you've even shipped the shipped the product. Yeah, it becomes a hundred percent. So, so statistics doesn't work in the way that we've normally relied on it. And the other thing I think that we're seeing is a is a is a massive explosion in the digitalization of the platforms that we're trying to talk about. Yeah, and the way that digital systems fail compared to the way that you know electromechanical analog systems fail is completely different. So the stability of those systems, and we've got, you know, we've got formulae, we've got maths, you know, we've got computer science going back really to the to the beginning of the 20th century and beyond that essentially say we've got an unsolvable problem here. You, you know, you get a single bit error on a digital system and it explodes into a failure. You get a, you get a minor change in an analog system. You don't get the same thing. And I think that aspect of trying to square those problems is where, is where, uh, is where we're, yeah, it works to the advantage of me as a cyber attacker, but but actually is where where these things are um, are needing to work with each other a lot more. I mean, I think that problem's been there in software development, you know, for ages. You know, just before you worry about safety or security, just trying to get the software right, trying to explain to people that if you've got an analog system, things are proportional. You know. Uh, small change here goes through some function. It produces this change here. It's reasonably anticipatable and whatever, and you can bounce. Once you get a digital system, try to explain to people that it's discontinuous. A little change here can provide a big change somewhere apparently unrelated. People have a head of getting around that just as software before you start throwing in safety and security issues. Unless you've been trained in digital systems, people find it really difficult to get their head around that. So I think that's right. What you were saying there, um, Roger, you're, you're definitely in a situation where these these are not new things. As I said, they, they go back to the 19th century. But the realization of the impact that these things have it's 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 typical. So we've moved from one place to another, and we haven't quite realized. But I think actually that's that's part of what you've observed to me. You know, this these giant diagrams that the, that you have. But if you look on a cyber attacker, I've got a, I want to do this. Yeah, I, I can use my AI to do this. I only have to win once. Yeah, I can use I can use any of these things in to stimulate this. And I think combined with that, some of the most serious thing that you have is is the is the when you were looking at sort of electromechanical systems, they had a tendency to fail one at a time. Or they, you know, that was the natural failure mode that go with these things. It didn't all happen at the same time. But we know from cyber attacks that we've been seeing, if I can compromise, for instance, yeah, if I can do a compromise against a processor or a, or a piece of Linux, it actually fails pretty globally and almost instantaneously. So, so, 
it's almost that you have you have the inverse of what we used to have. You have a you have a fail global first, and it's really difficult to make it yeah to make it actually um, uh, fail on an individual case. So the statistics and the probabilities really work against us. It seems to me on those sorts of things, and we've we've not necessarily fully embraced that. And I think that really comes to comes to comes to a point, shall we say? He says, not no pun intended on things like the V model and things of this nature, where, it, where we work on making everything the same so that I can break them all in the, in, as, as quickly as possible. And we've kind of lost this idea of diversity in our systems. But, but I, I, I wonder whether that's actually increasingly going to be a problem. Well, I think one of the things that you get in the development of software, automotive is following what have been commercial trends, is that you know there's a software stack. And what's sitting at the bottom of the software stack the customer never sees. It's largely invisible to everybody apart from the engineering community. So there's there's no commercial advantage in it. So let's just buy a standard part because it will be cheaper. And if we all buy the same part as we buy software from other suppliers, it's going to work because they will have developed it. So underneath, we're all resting on some base software, which if there's something wrong with it or somebody figures out you know, how to hack it, you've hacked every car. But the, the commercial pressures, you know, there's a strong argument for why that's a good idea, but there's a counter-argument to say makes you very vulnerable. I felt Edith was about to, to chip in there but when we interrupted and cut off across her again. It, yeah, but I was coming back more to the probability. So I think you'd, you've gone uh, in a slightly different direction here. I think um, getting a grip on the probabilities that to some extent um, – you're trying to sort of address incentive as well with the the likelihood of scenarios and having got enough coverage to say oh I've I've um, I've tried to to explore this unknown space sufficiently is uh, very different to how we used to address risk and uh, but still in my opinion I think slightly different to cybersecurity uh, because you're right in cybersecurity it's it's all about finding that one different or, or somebody creating that one single opportunity whereas i think in in um in SOTIF, it's about exploring as i said this this limitless space of possible scenarios and finding whether there are any out there where the weaknesses of my system line up sufficiently to give me a problem so i think that's a really good starting approach but but i have to say as a cyber attacker it doesn't deter me at all yet i, I think it's important because if you don't start to do some of that reasoning, then you have no basis for knowing whether you're doing what you wanted or not. And clearly, if you have no basis for knowing whether you're doing what you wanted or not, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting the number of times that I hear people describing the fact that the car knows that as though the car has some intelligence behind it. The car has no intelligence behind it. What it has is an algorithm that somebody has written in there. And what may be obvious to me that I didn't want it to do that is definitely not obvious to the car unless we happen to have written the correct algorithms and things into it. So I think the elements that you talk about in relation to SOTIF are really interesting, but they don't significantly, and it comes back to things like the complexity of the system, it comes back to the so that a single bit error will cause will cause unforeseen consequences and things. This exploring of the of the state spaces doesn't seem to me to be a a mathematically or technologically feasible activity. And then I'm combined with the fact with that the fact you've got conflicting objectives you're often trying to achieve in relation to these. I know there's a lot of discussion that you, that we've had at the moment about 
is the uh, what what is what is the failure mode? If something fails, do I come to a to come to a halt gracefully? And that may be the right action if you're talking about one about one vehicle. But if I'm talking about forty million vehicles, having forty million vehicles come to a halt gracefully and stop at the side of the M25, whilst it would be indistinguishable from a normal pre-COVID day, um, isn't actually what we want. And that that would be what I was trying to achieve with the attack. So there isn't actually a difference between these things so that we, we would know those sorts of, those sorts of things in advance. And I think a lot of my work has been on, on really trying to make those points about things. Yeah. I can always break it because, because I will always stimulate you to do something and then take it from there. And it's common when you're doing cyber attacks to talk about pivot attacks. You know, the fact you move from one thing to another to another. It's, it's not necessarily the first thing that I'm trying to break it on. Yeah, and that element is, it would seem to me, is almost impossible to defend. So I wonder whether actually when we're talking about the safety, we've got more of a need to start looking at how we, um, how we create enough diversity, how we, how we, yeah, and taking something of a different approach around those sorts of things. Because otherwise, my fear is that cybersecurity will always be the bane of your life. Uh, well, the, what's the question for me, if, if, you, if you mind to ask, is understanding... I mean, as I said, we, you, you, we were discussing a little bit of the, about the difference between, because I think there are some complementary things between functional safety and cyber, right? But, but at the same time as well, it will be interesting to understand, okay, if, if as what you said, Peter, in your point that uh, uh, you always will be attacking or have a point of entry to the system, what are we doing to actually make sure that, that as a technologist, what are we doing to make sure that uh, we can have a secure and safe system? You currently said a status now that basically there's always a point of entry. We're actually discussing as well about the automotive as well, that is basically is a, is a, is a place in which basically currently with the new mobility uh, schemes, with the new uh, autonomous cars coming into it, is bringing as well another risk. Uh, so basically, for me, it's interesting to understand as well. I mean, it, it, it's what are we doing as a technology group to help to improve the safety and how are we actually doing to help improve the cyber security in this particular. Shall I go first on this one? Because I, I think I think what I'm seeing is a what I'm seeing is a awful lot of stuff coming out of the functional safety area that is extremely good and very useful. And as I think I've said, I don't think security is there as an objective anyway. I think security is there in order to contribute to functional safety, to contribute to your privacy, to contribute to protecting the data that you have inside platforms so that you can sell them. It's it's there to achieve other objectives um, in relation to that. But I think part of the problem here is is from a cybersecurity point of view, I've had to move on to a situation where I expect to operate at a pace where my where my attacks, my changes, my threats um, evolve at a rate that that yeah that that is far greater than the marketing marketing department shall we say yeah so so i think when i looked at the statistics you know you're expecting over an eight year lifetime of a vehicle a quarter of a million cyber attacks yeah that's that's a lot <laughs> you wouldn't expect to go back through the functional safety calculations quarter of a million times or if you would you wouldn't expect to be making money on the vehicle so so the question of how you advance things in order to in order to do this and and uh, not telling lies to ourselves about what we're able to achieve and putting that in the right place is one where I think we definitely need to have a dialogue. But I'm 
really interested to hear what Edith and Roger have to say about that. Yeah, I think it's, um, I mean, that is definitely something that is going to be new, um, well, in the, well, or something where the automotive industry needs to change with a point of your functional safety. At the moment, process is expected to be finished um, when the design is complete. The need to, um, well, first of all, reevaluate for safety and uh, and potentially even update in line with security is something that the industry needs to adapt to. And, and there is obviously the safety angle to that as well, because um, potentially the uh, there could be a change in something could change in the world, in the environment that the, the, the system analyzes and interprets that would need to be um, accommodated uh, because it'll otherwise result in hazardous behavior. So um, in, in that respect, yes, um, this continuous lifetime continuation of the, of, of the activity is something new. I, 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 th I think it's interesting at this point to just to reflect on a, a couple of points that you, you've all you've all made. The 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 need for functional safety and and what we're trying to make safe and secure is going through a major transformation at the moment. In the last couple of years, a significantly greater number of vehicles have been connected, and therefore the vulnerability has gone up, and the control system complexity of the vehicles that we're designing is also going up, driven by market demand for autonomous-like capabilities and progressing to you know, the nirvana view of mobility available to everyone through vehicles manoeuvring for themselves, potentially changing the safety culture completely with no driver involved any longer and therefore no one to blame at the wheel of, of the vehicle in question. So what, what, what are your views on, A, that, that um, sort of systematic change of environment affecting both the safety case and, and then the integrity of it, and the transformation moving forward the, in terms of what we're going to have to do differently as a, as a group of industries? Because this is not just automotive, this is different technology cultures as well. So I think, Roger, if you could have a stab at that first as our autonomous guru. I well, I'll make a point that I was going to make, which sort of fits in, but it's, um, it's changing the subject slightly. I always sort of work around analogies, as, as you know, from many years of experience. So sort of my analogy here is it, it's a bit like the current COVID situation, you know, or all these diseases. They don't go away. You have to live with it. We're not going to eradicate it. We've somehow got to live with it. Now, there's things that we can do, and, you know, we can throw technology at it, and, you know, we have done, and we've been successful with vaccines, uh, and we can try and educate people in terms of the behaviours and safer behaviours. Um, but we'll never get rid of it. We've got to learn to live with it, and at some point we will have the end of lockdowns and we will have travel, and um, People will um, go back to living normally, but people will still be getting and dying from COVID. And it's really up to the government to decide uh, what's um, an acceptable level and when are things are getting too out of control and they, they need to intervene again. And it seems to me that, you know, maybe there's a similar situation with things like this. We know we can't solve all of the problems and make everything absolutely safe and absolutely secure from cyber. That's just not, not possible. What level is acceptable? Well, individual engineers shouldn't be making that. And I would say companies shouldn't be making that. It's a societal thing. And so that this discussion between what do we do isn't just between 
the different engineering disciplines. Um, it's also with society, which has got to really be via the government. And there are lots of, you know, governments are getting engaged now to try and have uh, these discussions, certainly in the UK. Um, and um, the problem is the governments then look to the technology people and say, so what's the answer? <laughs> we go, well, there isn't an answer. You know, it, it, in the same way as they look, you know, the UK government has been following the science and asking the experts what they should do. You know, what's the answer? And the scientists will, you know, can only say, if you do this, you increase the risk. If you do this, you decrease the risk here, but you, you increase the risk elsewhere. So you're the politicians, you decide. And there is an element that, you know, the politics will ultimately decide what's acceptable. And it might be a long feedback loop between things happening um in the field and then public opinion um responding to that and then the government responding it it's it, it, it there is a feedback loop unfortunately it's very slow and we just have to accept some bad things will happen despite all our best efforts to avoid them they will happen and i think Roger, that's that's a, that's, a, that's a really good point as well because basically i always uh discuss about this is, and this conversation we're having here is we're trying to, to solve a really complex problem, right? And that complex problem needs to actually be solved with uh, different abilities and skills for different people as well. It's what you said. I mean, I think in some of the, uh, of the discussions of safety and some of the discussions of cyber as well, we at the end need to protect the humans and we need to understand as well how the humans actually uh, behave so social ethics, philosophy as well need to be involved into this conversation. And even more, if we actually putting our hat on of the autonomy, when we actually bring in the AI uh, in, in the equation as well, that it means that we are building a brain, right? And then trying to solve how we actually protect and secure the brain is, is a complex uh, area. But I think... On the on the on the positive side, the thing is a lot of the good things starting to happen in the industry. It's a lot of collaborations, as you said, Roger. It's a lot of conversations, and I think that and I think that 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 for 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 us uh, and the industry is back again to what yet mentioned before is how how we starting to decompose the the challenge and starting to do a baby steps to actually trying to solve the problem. And for me, actually, it, it will be interesting to know as, as well. For, for for you, the experts as well, is like how we how we how we actually doing it. How, for example, the industries are transforming. How we understanding the 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 importance of safety and the importance of cyber as well in their business. Because at the end of the day, I think this change is starting for companies that they need to be products out. So I so I think David and I, and I think I think cyber is just an example of an emergent property of a system. Um, I think it, it is one of the it is one of the Self-evident truths, as far as I'm concerned, um, but it doesn't seem to be generally held necessarily. That, that even things that used to be quite simple systems, things like braking systems, are actually now complex systems. They have emergent properties in them. And I think one of the things that's difficult on that is 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 you get emergent properties, you know, in the way these things are are, are connected. That is that is you know these are the types of complex systems that we're we're incorporating into vehicles, between vehicles, into the systems that they're driving with, and we're not making that smaller. And all I do as a cyber attacker is stimulate an emergent property. But I think one of the examples that I guess I'd like to sort of put into play here, and I, I was discussing this recently with, with, with some guys in the automotive industry, we, we had an issue where, where, where the, the Bluetooth chipset vendors updated the Bluetooth stack 
um, change the buffering. Very good thing to do. We were moving more towards streaming and all the rest of the things. It was a good thing to do. Went into the chipsets. But good practice in relation to engineering was not to do dynamic buffer allocation. So well-written code suddenly found it couldn't get buffers. And when it couldn't get buffers, it was, well, there must be a memory leak. There must be a fault. And it went into all of the fallback systems and things that went with that, which in one case that I was looking at involved uh, a fluctuation on the power supply that caused a crash. Yeah. So what you were looking at here was a perfectly sensible thing. Yeah, everybody done very sensible things all the way down the line, but the outcome was bad. And that would be fine as long as what you were looking at was a single element that you're looking at. But often, yeah, what we're now looking at is at some point we will be looking at a catastrophic failure associated with that. So I think Roger's point there about, yeah, governments will talk about this, we'll need to do whatever we need, is absolutely right. But the one thing that governments can't tolerate is a catastrophic failure of the system. Yeah, that's that's the bit we can't have. And it's 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 our engineering practices that are helping create that situation. So the good things that we've been doing in the past, and they have been good, it's been very effective over the last 50 years in really improving the safety, are now starting to be the sorts of things that in the face of an emergent property or a cyber attack will be exactly what, what proves to be our undoing, I think. Um, and we need to start thinking about that now before before we have a lot of time to think about it because we're all sitting at home because our cars aren't running. We you know we, we need to think about that whilst we have enough time to do so because otherwise my fear is it won't be the government. It'll actually be the courts that will say that we have done the wrong things there because we knew that would be the outcome. But th- th- this this is a really interesting aspect of it because this this is a, a society dynamic going on. So so. Now, the, the the social demand and the commercial demand to continue to enhance the functionality of the vehicle, to extend its performance, to make it more efficient and effective, um, is is driving complexity into the design for which we actually don't have mitigating engineering technique deployed. It's not to say it doesn't exist at all, but it's not deployed in those engineering processes. You know, SOTIF is an example of a, of a of a capability in a process that that's trying to keep up with that space it, it is very much trying to make the engineering more robust more modular but it but it's behind the curve of the change in the complexity so I, i'd be interested in in your thoughts collectively on on that Edith, do you want to open up on that one? Yes. Yeah, no, it's a very good question. Um, and it, it is something I think in the SOTIF working group that people were aware of that. And there was there is an absolute pull for a standard giving developers um, a few of what best practice is so that they can, you know, in, in, in case of, of anything going wrong, use it as a defense that they've followed best practices. But on the other hand, even within the working group, when the when the standard was being um, being written, being produced, um, people disagreed. People weren't sure what the best practices were still, because they are still being developed as the technology evolves. So yes, who makes the decision? What's the, what you can or or can't do? Okay, I think it's always true that the standardisation process always lags behind the technology. You know, often by up to 10 years that's why i always say you know 26262 when it 
was published was a fantastic standard for a 20th century car. You know, it was a bit lacking for the 21st century cars that, you know, we were then making. Um, and that's, I'm, I'm not sure what we can do about that. But I'd also, I mean, I just mentioned this is one of my um, soapboxes that I've, I've mentioned many times uh, before. But I think traditional automotive companies, a lot of them, in my experience, not just the company I worked for, but talking to other people, experience in other companies, um, are sympathetic to this view. Traditionally, a car was just made from a, a box of bits. And if you wanted something, you bought a bit and you bolted it on and you were worried about where you were going to package it. You worried about um, how much it was going to weigh. Um, later on, you might worry about what sort of material it was made out of. But you assumed that you could just put it on and take it off. And it had very little interaction with anything else. And the interactions you did have were quite simple and they were largely mechanical forces. And you were worried about rattles and squeaks and it not falling off. Obviously, a modern car is nothing like that at all. But that's a mindset and it's a mindset that has grown up over 100 years and has been true except for the last 20 or 30 years. Um, but if you've got a traditional company, it still is structured. And, you know, I know from experience, trying to get it to think differently, it's very difficult. I don't know with the new people coming into to cars that don't have that history, whether they're able to take a more, a different view and think of the car as a complete system. And certainly, you know, this thing about we need to start using more systems engineering is one of these things people have been saying for 10 years Everybody, even the companies agree, but the companies can't make the shift because it is just so difficult to make that change while still churning out products at a very great rate in order to generate income just to keep the, the show on the road, which, which makes the change that, you know, Peter's talking about, I think that's really difficult for companies to do. And engineers can't, can't do it. It's got to come from quite senior positions. But so, so, so let, me, let me throw in a, a, a debating point then. So it, it, it sounds like this is a difficult thing for market forces to drive. So how about legislating for it? Oh, I think that's worse. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the danger. Yeah, there's nothing. If you say that standards follow, yeah, the other, yeah, legislation follows even further behind. I have to say, yeah, and, and what I would observe there is is. And, and that's not to denigrate legislators or anything of that nature. I, I think what you have is a set of principles that sit at the bottom, yeah, that are yeah to do with how you look after each other, how you don't kill people, all that kind of stuff. And the legislation you're looking for is how are you going to limit and or and or change those sorts of things in you know, to incentivize the sorts of things that society would like to be doing. But can you imagine a legislator sitting down and writing? a legal requirement for something that we don't yet know how to do, you know, but for which we've already got cars on the road. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that surely is the worst of all worlds. You, you have to be given time to, you know, you have to find a way to get enough time to evolve towards something. In fact, I really liked what Roger said there. I, I'm looking forward to having my, my grandchildren in the car with me and being able to, to, to cock my ear and ask them whether they can hear the squeak in the software. <laughs> <laughs> Edith, you were going to make a point. Well, I was just going to add to it, though. Legislation, um, I mean, there's obviously the aspect of it of setting the rules to keep everyone safe enough. Normally, legislation or, well, or governments are also aiming to um, allow innovation because, you know, that's what uh, 
supports businesses. And it's that fine trade-off between uh, allowing innovation and allowing it safely. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I was being deliberately provocative because I, I, I think that there are circumstances where legislation can be used uh, in in a positive and proactive way. And the, the most obvious, which springs to mind, is emission standardisation coming out in the states, which set what to, what was perceived to be an impossible target. And all the manufacturers globally said that we'll never get to those numbers. It will be completely uneconomic to to achieve that. But uh, the legislators set enormous fines if you didn't achieve it, and and you know a potential restriction on the marketplaces. And all of a sudden, everyone was able to do it, and they spent a lot of time and money, and they got there. But it did slow progress in development. Well, no, it just changed the direction of development, yes. didn't it? <laughs> and, and I have to say, Jed, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely looking forward to Dieselgate uh, being converted to Cybergate in 2025. With all of that, <laughs> you've missold the value of your company. Yeah, you knew perfectly well your methods couldn't achieve what you said, and you've been misleading the public. Uh, I, I'm, you're looking forward to yeah. a lengthy <laughs> retirement uh, as a, con- a consultant advisory. Yeah. To the we, need to, we need to make a bet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys, we, we 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 see that we are kind of uh, getting close to the to the to the to, to the end of the podcast. Uh, and before we leave, I just want you to 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 the, all of our uh, speakers that they give us. I always do that in every podcast, or try to do that in every podcast. Is give us kind of like of your view of what is where where we are now and where we need to go to actually be uh, uh, more close to uh, having. And I know that it's been said that we cannot be insecure or safe, right? But how we can be uh, more resilient. In the in the next uh, five ten years, who wants to take the first one? <laughs> I can go first. Um, I well, I think there's still a lot to be done, and it's going to keep us functional safety and uh, cybersecurity engineers busy for quite some time yet. Um, in yeah, so in this new area of the connected with the connected and autonomous cars, um, I mean, hopefully, safety will become more of a concern um i believe that in the in the past it's quite often just been assumed it's there anyway and maybe didn't be didn't get the focus that it really needed uh, because it wasn't the selling point um but especially with the with the um advent of more and more autonomous or automated driving features it becomes part of the performance if that's the right word, of, of, of the functionality that the customer will um, uh, more obviously. And, uh, yeah, having cybersecurity and safety work together is certainly something that, that needs to, to happen in the future. So I would say, um, one, I don't think that we leverage. Everything that we know how to do is not being fully leveraged by organizations. So this even not addressing the problems we've been talking about today, if we did what we knew how to do, we could improve the situation. I'd certainly if you, I mean, I live within the functional safety community. So, you know, whenever we get together across the world, uh, it's like just been a conference for two days um, this week. We all have a big whinge about our companies and about how (laughs) difficult it is to to get change and to, you know, to do what we want to do. I agree that the... um, it's becoming more aware 
and and I think greater awareness I think should improve things. But there is a downside to it because once you become aware of something and project managers become aware of something, it becomes a line on their spreadsheet, and what they want is that red square turned to a green square. They don't much care how you do it, and they just shout at people or demand what's going on, make it happen which then leads them legitimately later on to say, oh, well, you know, yes, we thought about it, and, and yes, it was done. But, I mean, being done just means we turn the square on the spreadsheet a different colour, isn't necessarily doing it. So you, you have a focus on it, but you don't have a focus on doing a really good job. You have a focus on being able to feed into the project management system. Um, and that's a downside, and that does happen. I mean, these things are all intention. Um, I think the the only way forward for the industry, but I think it's still um, it's been talking about it for a long time and still struggling, is a huge paradigm shift to be more of a systems based um, organization and a systems based engineering that can spread across the supply chain. Because you know what we've been talking about isn't delivered by one company; it's been delivered by myriad companies, all working differently. Um, you know, slightly different languages and different diagrams. So some consistency there would help enormously, I think. I, I think I'd like to plagiarise your phrase, if you don't mind, Roger. I, I, I think you need to think and keep thinking. I think, I think we need to stop lying to ourselves, you know, which, which is, a, is a bit provocative. But, but I, I think often we're actually lying to ourselves about what we're able to achieve. Um, I, think, I think we need to recognise the scale and pace that we need to operate at um, in relation to the systems that we're now developing. Um, and and we need to consider the economics and the technological bits that actually fit with those. So so where we know that can't feasibly be done, yeah, we should say so, you know, and you're going to have to find a different route, you know, not sit there going, oh, I can do half of that, I can do a third of that. Because I think one of the consequences is that that we've got from this connectivity and from the fact we're so much more digitized is that you know we are at risk of catastrophic failures much more than we used to be and it's our job to make sure that we factor that into our thinking that would be my observation and i'm here to help you he says (laughs) (laughs) well uh, thank you everybody for that fascinating set of contributions uh, I think this is this has been for me at least uh, one of the most uh, uh, interesting and exciting conversations we've had in the, in the park. I hope you've enjoyed it. I think uh, just to just to summarise, uh, we we've definitely got uh, an exciting you know, ten to twenty years at the end of our careers to manage through this, and uh, it, it's going to need uh, a lot of engagement, a lot of collaboration to to bring this together. And uh, we we we're going to use mechanisms like this to 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 the, and the the podcast to draw out and to improve the communication around it and call for 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 action and engagement on the global stage to 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 make this play out for the the well being of our families and and society as a whole. So thank you so much for joining us. I hope you've enjoyed it and look forward to seeing you very soon in the real world in a real park. Yeah, thank you very much, guys. And and to all our audience, uh, we actually keep producing uh, more podcasts to actually bring some hot topic of the mobility. 
So we will be releasing uh, more interesting topics. So keep following us and hopefully see you soon on the next podcast. Okay. Thanks, thanks everyone. So much. That was great. Yeah. Thanks, Good. everyone.